pastor here at Restoration City Church. Uh, this is... Uh, in some ways, uh, uh, what we might call a one-off sermon, but I, I'm considering it sort of a preparatory sermon for what we'll be looking at and studying and, and, uh, and, and thinking on with the Lord for the next few weeks. Um, every week, our church, as you guys just did, we open our worship by repeating and saying together um, our, our church's purpose, our mission statement. We make disciples of Jesus on the mission of Jesus for the glory of Jesus. That's the purpose for which we as a church exist. That's why God put us together. That's why he, he, that, like, that's why he told us to plant and be a church is for that purpose. Um, it's a statement that we don't ever want to move on from or graduate from. Like, we've got it. We've got it memorized. So what's the next thing? Uh, instead, we, we want to move forward with it. We want to move forward in it. We want to graduate deeper into that purpose. Uh, and so here at the beginning of the year, uh, it seems wise to reorient and, and refresh ourselves uh, in the core essential truths that make us Christians, that, that form us not only as individual Christians, but form us as God's people, the church, and it gives direction uh, in, in our lives together. Um, many, many years ago, hundreds of years ago, in fact, in 1646, uh, the Church of England was led to organize and create what's now known as something called the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, they organized biblical truths, the central, essential biblical truths of Christianity into statements that uh, could be taught in a clear um, and memorable way. And, and, and they really started this thing out well because the first statement, the first confession in the Westminster Confession or Catechism of Faith uh, is, is this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's, that's the purpose that we ought to see from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22. It's the purpose that we ought to see from day one of human history to the present day and into the future eternity. The purpose. Why did God create the universe? And specifically, why did he, why did he create us? What are we here for? Why did he make man? What's his purpose? And it's that statement, it's to, to show and demonstrate his glory so that his glory, which exists independently because God is forever, he's independent of all, all existence, all things that exist depend on his existence. He, he's not created, he is creator. And he is eternally glorious, valuable, wonderful, mysterious, awe-inspiring, terrifying in his endless and limitlessness, right? And he created the universe and it's specifically man, to show and demonstrate his glory, to reveal that there's nothing more wonderful, more valuable, more satisfying than God himself. He created us for that purpose. To we're here and created so he could show us him. And that's why our, our church's purpose statement terminates on the phrase, the glory of Jesus. That's the crescendo of what we are saying and trying to live in as a church, as individuals together, the glory of Jesus. We're disciples, followers. We're followers, friends of Jesus Christ, the God man, the, the glorious and enjoyable one, God incarnate in human flesh. And we live with an overarching, guiding, indeed controlling, every day and in everything mission. And that mission is to 
show one another and to show the world how good he is, how great he is, how satisfying and how trustworthy he is. That's our mission. And the purpose, the mission of all Christians, of all churches, of all churches in all times and all places, is to find God wonderful and enjoyable and to enjoy him in our lives so much that the rest of the world is convinced and persuaded that the joy and satisfaction that they desperately want and are seeking is actually only found in him. So that, that Westminster Confession of Faith, the chief purpose the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There, there's a pastor many of you have probably heard of, and I, I, I kind of refer to this back all the time because I think it's a good change. There's a pastor named John Piper who, who just changed it. And you're not, allowed to, you're not allowed to change the Bible, but you're allowed to change like the Westminster Catechism. You could tweak it. You can mess with it, right? And he just changes this by one word. The chief purpose, your chief purpose as a human being is to glorify God by enjoying him. Because what we enjoy, we honor. What we enjoy, we we, we glorify. What we enjoy, we esteem and promote and dignify. So to really start out our ori- reorientation, our renewal, our refreshment uh, as a church in the new year, um, and really launching into that in the next few weeks, I, I want to offer you this sermon that I'm just, I'm just calling Dependence, Gratitude, and the Glory of God. Dependence, Gratitude, and the Glory of God. The scripture reading today from Romans chapter 1 16 through 23, it describes and, and, and defines the essential problem, the essential problem of the human race. Indeed, all other problems, all other sicknesses, sufferings, traumas, tragedies, everything, everything that is broken, poisoned, fractured, and sickly, failing, feeble, messed up about the human race and all of the universe, all of it is conceived and born from this specific problem. That's found in Romans chapter 1. Everything. The, the, the chief problem, the essential problem of the human race isn't greed. It's not selfishness. It's not racism. It's not war. It's not, those are problems. Those are terrible, deep, wounding, injurious, murderous problems. But they're, they're all conceived and born from this essential problem. Would you read with me from Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18? I'm just going to read it out loud. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who, by their unrighteousness, they do what? They suppress the truth. For what, God, what, what can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that he's made. So they are without excuse. Here's what the problem looks like. God's revealed himself in a noble way, in a plain way. Right? There, there's something that uh, theologians and Bible scholars and, and normal Christians ought to refer to um, as special revelation and general, general revelation. God reveals himself. He makes plain who he is and what his character is like. In a general way, he does that through nature, physics, and science, and trees, and animals, and and your human bodies, and and rocks. The Bible says that all of creation declares the glory of God, his his presence, and his perfection, and his, his worthiness. 
And it's general. Any human being can just look at it and go, that's beyond us. Like, I didn't make me, right? No, I, no, none of this is under, like, my final ultimate control. There's someone and some, or something greater that, that makes this happen. It's very general. But then there's, there's what's called special revelation, and, and that's just the Bible. It, it's stuff that you need to know about God that you can't know unless he tells you. And he tells you specifically in the Bible. There are things you can't learn about God from nature that you can only know from the scriptures. And so through both special revelation, through God actually talking to men, and from general revelation, where just God talks through his creation, he just goes, hey, I'm here. This is what kind of creative, endlessly uh, just interesting God I am. He's been revealing himself in a, in a knowable way. I don't ever want to take away from or rob God of any of his mystery. He is endless, limitless, omniscient, eternal, right? He is beyond our complete and total understanding. Yes. Amen. Selah. We'll just be quiet, Selah. And yet he, he doesn't intend to remain totally or even mostly mysterious. I think many people will, will plead uh, and, and beg the... the the idea that they shouldn't work hard or put effort or time or energy into reading the Bible, learning theology, devoting themselves to the things of the Lord in their mind because they're, they're lazy, right? And, and hiding that laziness comes this phrase, well, God's mystery. Why would you even work that hard to study and think and learn? You're, you're, just, you're just being too religious. God's mysterious. You're trying, to put, you're trying to put God in a box, right? These theological phrases. I, I don't want to do anything that God doesn't want to do. But here in Romans 1, he goes, hey, there's some stuff that he's made known. He's made it plain. He's revealing himself on purpose. He doesn't want to stay a mystery to us. He wants us to know him and remain mystified at him in all that we know. He's shown himself. Verse 20 says, these things that are invisible about God, his eternal power, his divine nature, his, his glory and limitless power and wisdom, they, they've been made visible. He's shown it to the human race. Well, the, here's the next step, and the problem is that all humans know what God has revealed. Romans chapter 1 and the whole Bible says that no, one's, no one has an excuse, right? The problem isn't that God hasn't shown up and revealed himself and said and, and shown what we need in order to believe in him and know him and belong to him and worship him and honor him, right? That's a, that's a common excuse or plea that you and I may hear from, especially lost people, to go, well, I'd, I'd believe in God if he would show up in a vision or talk to me in face-to-face. -face. I mean, if he's all-powerful God, why didn't he just do that? That's nothing for him. Why, why, why doesn't he just change the letters on a billboard miraculously? So why doesn't he carve something in a cliff? He does, he's got all these miracles in the Old Testament, but I can't believe in God because there's just not an, enough evidence, and that's that really in, in love, I say, but also in truth, that's a cop-out. Because the Bible here says that's an excuse. The Bible here tells us what the problem is. All human beings know what God has revealed. Verse 20 says God's revealed himself, and it's been clearly perceived. It, and and it's, God has been clearly perceived, not just when Jesus Christ was born and resurrected, not just when the first books of the Bible were, were being written down or when God talked to Noah or Abraham. It's ever since the creation of the world, each and every human being has perceived and has known what they ought to know about God. Namely, his invisible, mysterious attributes, his, his glory. 
And every human being naturally suppresses what God has revealed. Every natural born human being, and that's every human being, we suppress the truth. When you think, when you, I want you to think of literally um, what the Bible here says in futility. I want you to think of the futility of a child who's ashamed and you walk into the room to find the mess they've made and they take a blanket and they put them, the blanket over themselves, believing that if they can't see you, you can't see them. Believing that if they tell you some really outlandish, foolish lie, that you'll believe it. Suppressing the truth that they themselves know. And it's futile. It's against common sense. It's outlandishly foolish. How could, how could you be so foolish to think that that flies? How could you think, how could you insult me and, and believe I'm so foolish to accept that, right? Every human being naturally suppresses what God's revealed. And verse 18, I want you to, I want you to see this, how this works, this machinery. We human beings, we don't become sinners by denying and ignoring or even neglecting the truth about God's existence and his glory, his value. We don't become sinners by doing that. We suppress and deny God's glory and value because we are ungodly and unrighteous. It says that we suppress the truth by what? By our unrighteousness and godly ungodliness, right? This is an essential truth that we have to accept about ourselves, every human be being, right? And it's an essential part of the gospel. The gospel is the greatest news in the whole universe, and it starts with some of the worst news in the whole universe, and you can't skip over that part, which is you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. You by nature. That's who we are. And we suppress the truth. Therefore, we're under God's wrath, and none of us have an excuse. The truth that we're naturally denying is that God is ultimately and endlessly glorious. See, it, it, it's not simply a great sin to disbelieve. I don't believe in his existence, right? You can believe in God and his existence and still be under his wrath, right? Which is, which is why what we might call um, uh, an um, agnostic person, which there are, I think, honestly, just side note, uh, this is kind of for free. So um, I don't really, I'm not really sure there are many agnostic people out there. I think many agnostics, people who claim I'm agnostic, they're really just kind of lazy atheists. They just don't want to have the conversation with you, right? You knock on the door, hi, I'd like to share with you the news of my Lord and Jesus Christ, my, my Savior. Would you let me in and talk to you? Right? And they go, I'm agnostic. I, I believe in God, but I'm just not, there's no way to know, right? They probably just don't believe in God, but they want to, just like soothe you. I believe in God. Your work is kind of done. You don't have to work on me. Go away. I don't, I don't want to talk to you about this. And that's what agnosticism claims is. I believe in a God, but he's, he's, he's mysterious. He's beyond our understanding in any meaningful way. So why even try? Why plant a flag or lay claim or stand in any position? Why, why do that? Why? Why don't? Because I just don't feel like it. So I'll claim and feign ignorance past the belief in the existence of God. But that's not the, that's not the ultimate and final thing that brings God, God's wrath. It's not simply to deny his existence, but to, even if he does exist, to deny the truth about what kind of person he is, what kind of God he is. 
that he is ultimately and endlessly glorious. He is the independent and endlessly, endless fountainhead. Hear me. He's the endless fountainhead of all that is satisfying, anything that is glorious, wondrous, interesting, astounding, and enjoyable. He's the fountainhead and source of any and every good thing. He's the fountainhead and source of anything that ought to bring you pleasure, security, happiness, hope, joy. And that's the truth that we deny. That's the truth that human beings naturally suppress. That's, that's the source, that's the wellspring of all of our other sins. Every other sin is suppressing that truth. And here's how we do this denying. In case any of, the, any of us in here are really good Christians, right? In case we're like, oh, I'm, I'm really glad this sermon really doesn't point directly at me because, man, I, I know God and I love him. I think he's great. Let's all just like slow down and pump those brakes. Here's how we do this denying. Verse 21, for although they knew God, you believe in God. The Bible says great demons believe. At least they have the sense to shudder and quake in their boots, right? Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They didn't give thanks to him, but they, gave, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images Resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's the essential thing that we do in suppressing the truth. Here's our problem. We know who and what God is, but we refuse to think of, feel about him, and treat him accordingly. We refuse to think of and feel about him and treat him accordingly. Even at our best often, we kind of we do that we, we 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 kind of honor him and glorify him but the, like what does the bible describe us as if you're a christian what is what, in the new testament it calls us we're, we're jars of clay like we're leaky and if you forget all the time god your gratefulness for him your existence the fact that he's keeping blood pumping through your heart right this second and you weren't thinking about it until i said something right you hypochondriacs are like oh no this is a Ooh, I think I had a heart flutter too. God, please say, right? Just don't, right? In futility, in, with futile minds, the, when the Bible says futility, right? With futile minds in their thinking, what the Bible is calling that is unbelievably, absurdly, insanely irrational against common sense thinking, right? That's the nature of sin, is futility. It's absurdly irrational. Sin is absurdly irrational. It's illogical. It's against common sense. Because, let's say, for example, the, the chief arch enemy, the chief of sinners, Satan, right? And any of you paused and wondered and thought just for a second, like, well, man, if like Satan's like so old and he's been around and he's seen all this stuff and he was an angel and he was the chief of angels and he was the closest angel to God, he knows some stuff and like he... How can he be so stupid to see all that God has done so far and disbelieve that God's not going to bring about this end in hell and throw him in the lake of fire and demolish him and kill him? I mean, just, why doesn't he repent? Is he that stupid? Well, Satan's very savvy. He's very sophisticated. He's very intelligent. Way, way beyond our capacity. But that's the nature of sin. 
is to act against common sense. It's to be irrational. And for each and every one of us, let's say, those of us who have experienced uh, walking in the sin of, let's say, perhaps gluttony or overindulgence in alcohol or or smoking cigarettes or, or doing something that's not good for me, right? The moment you realize, like, this is not good, something needs to be changed, I'm sinning against myself, I'm disobeying God with how he wants me to use these things and treat my body, I'll never do that, oh, I feel terrible, my head's rocking, I'll never do that again only to find yourself yet again doing that very thing again? Even though now you're walking into that thing going, I know how this works, I know what this is going to do to me. And maybe, maybe not this time, though, even though it's happened a hundred times before. It's irrational. This is the futility of human thinking. We, we end up with darkened hearts. We don't think of and treat God as actually wise, that his ways and his designs and his commands are actually the right ones. We want to do things our way. And see, the problem is that God, it's not a matter of that God hasn't revealed himself. He hasn't shed enough light. It's that we've seen the light, and we don't like, we don't like, we don't like it. We love darkness. We've, we've seen God's wisdom, and we don't like it. We want to try our own wisdom. With futile minds and darkened hearts, here's what humans do. We, we exchange the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man and all sorts of created things. Created things that, yes, do have a certain aptitude of glory or value and, and worth. I've been to Colorado. That's my happy, happy, happy place. The Rocky Mountains, right? Are they not glorious? If you've seen, you've been to the Grand Canyon? Glory, right? Stone Mountain, glory. Norway, Finland, Sweden, those of you who uh, planted a bitter seed of jealousy in my heart because you went on a Scandinavian cruise without me. You've seen glory, right? But it's not ultimate glory. It's a lesser glory. And created people, any of you have met a glorious person? Like a really just amazing person. They're impressive. They have glory. Every human being has glory, but it's not a glory innately of the mountains that the mountains have in and of themselves, that the ocean has in and of itself, that the the universe and the stars in the sky have in and of themselves, that that person has in and of themselves. They have that glory. These things, created things, have glory because they were created by the ultimately glorious creator. Because they're his offspring, they have that from him. And we exchange the source of the glory for for, for a a little teacup that's that's kind of poisoned and embittered, and it has the glory in it. And we go, ah, there's the God. That's my satisfaction. There's the glory that I need that will make me whole. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. We make our own gods. We, we take the credit and honor that belongs only to God and we hand it over to something or someone that's lesser. It's to, to think and feel and do this way. I want joy. I want to be satisfied. I want to feel and I want to be loved. I want someone to love. I want to feel safe. I want to feel comforted. I want to be at peace. I want to be mystified. I want to be astounded. I want to be entertained. I want to be sure of my place and my purpose. And I believe my career is going to provide that for me. I believe achievement in my field is going to do that for me. I believe finally earning the respect and love of my daddy is going to finally fulfill and meet those needs. I believe 
either getting that spouse or fixing that spouse is going to finally fulfill that, those needs in me. More and better material wealth is going to get that for me. Being included in the right group or the prevailing side of things in nation, society, or culture, being on the right side of history, that's, if I, if I, if I can have that then, all will be well with me. I'll be okay then. And by the way, I haven't named a single bad desire. Nothing on the list is something that you shouldn't want. Nothing in there is a sinful desire. In fact, I'm, I dare say the Bible tells us through its whole story, through its whole message, is that God created us, designed us with those wants. He put those wants, those desires, those needs in you. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that God has created mankind and every human being, God has placed eternity into his heart, into his soul. There is an eternal gap that's created in you that nothing but God fits into and actually satisfies. God is independent. And therefore, everything that he creates is by definition what? Dependent. God doesn't create anything that's independent of him. For it to exist, it needs him to make it and sustain it. So you and I, all human beings, we're designed to be dependent. It's purposeful. It's not accident that we're born needy. Being dependent and in want. God created and purposed our existence to be one defined by his glorious independence and his glorious value and our happy dependence on his glory on his creating and sustaining and taking care of us. And with futile and darkened minds and hearts, we do what Jeremiah chapter 2 says. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, God says it. He he points out the problem. He says, he talks to his own creation. He talks to the, the angels. He talks to all the universe. And he says, be appalled at this, you heavens. Shudder with great horror declares the Lord, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me. They left me behind. They departed me. They walked away from me. They turned their back on me. And they've dug their own cisterns, wells. They've dug their own wells, broken wells and cisterns that can't hold water. We deny this and suppress the truth that glorious God who created us to depend on him and be satisfied, we deny the truth that he's good enough, that he's the one well we can't do without. Even though he is the well of life, he's the well, he's the source of peace and joy and hope and love, security, approval, significance, meaning, beauty, all the things that we need. And there's some sort of hierarchy of survival needs. I forget the, the, the philosopher's name. Just shout it out to me. You, don't, you guys don't say amen, so just tell, answer me. The, any of you know what the hierarchy of human needs are, survival? Maslow, there we go, thank you. And I know you're, now I know your voice is working. You're allowed to say amen when, when it's appropriate, all right? That hierarchy of needs, Maslow didn't like make that up. He just recognized it. That's designed by God. It's designed by God in us to have those gaps and needs so that he'd be the one who fulfills those needs with his glory. 
Now, he created us thirsty. He created us with a thirst of desires that are quenched only by drinking his water. And we exchange that truth for a lie. We exchange the ultimate independent glory of God for the lesser dependent glory of what he's created. We exchange the water of life and instead we're hoping with, fut- with irrational, crazy, insane futility that this, just another cup of sand will finally quench my thirst. We need to see it in our hearts and minds, this attitude and posture. And it's shown up in the attitude and posture because look in verse 21. How is the evidence? Because they did not honor him as God. They didn't, they didn't give thanks to him. They didn't give thanks to him. Exodus chapter 32, any of you familiar with what happens there? That's the golden calf incident where God has just like demolished all the gods of Egypt with his strong and mighty miraculous right hand. He's beaten all the gods of Egypt, beaten Pharaoh and the most powerful nation on earth at the time. He marches his people out with treasures from their former enslavers who gave it to them and said, please go. And then he gets them to a sea, splits that wide open, marches them past and through, gets them into the desert. He's been giving them like bread from the sky, like rocks are just spilling out water in the middle of the desert. He goes, great, now I'm going to give you my law. I'm going to give you my design and path for what it looks like for us to be in a relationship. I'm your God and you're my people. Moses, get up here. I want to talk to you. Takes them like five minutes, maybe five days. I don't know. But it takes them only so long for them to forget. And next thing you know, everyone's unclothed, hammered, and they're throwing a religious festival and they make for themselves a stupid baby golden cow. And what they say in Exodus 32 is they go, here is our God who saved us from Egypt. Here is our God who will protect us in the wilderness. Like, if you're the one who does that, right? Like, okay, so if you're a parent, you kind of know a little bit of what this is, especially like a parent and your kid's like 8, 9, 10 or on, right? And you've been teaching them, discipling them, giving and sharing your wisdom because you love your child and you want them to flourish. And all it takes is for them to get a baseball coach, or a gymnastics teacher, and then they come at home at some point, and they go, hey, you know what, man, man, my coach, my teacher, this, man, they're so great. Do you know what they told me? Man, this is going to change my life, dad. They said blah, 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 and you're, now your head explodes, and you're frothing in the mouth. There's a reason some of us dads stutter so much, right? It's be, I didn't told you that a hundred times, and what, he just says it once, and I'm like, woo, right? Like, it happens to me as a pastor all the time, Right? Guest pastors come in, they're from Scotland, all they do is say the things I've already said with a Scottish accent, and you guys are like, oh, I'm saved again, baptize me again. You know, I'm not even mad, I'm just, like, I'm just glad you're getting it, okay? I'm glad, I'm I don't care where you get it from. But if you've ever felt that a little bit, you're like, where's my credit? Because I really did say that thing, I really have been imparting, and, and you, t- you take that credit and you give it to some, someone else? That's what we do. With our career, with our money, with our hobbies, with our spouses, with our children, with our families, with our nation, with our politics, with our philosophies. We even do it with our own suffering and wounds. We'll make gods out of our sin. We'll make gods tragic, dark, scary gods that control our lives through the pain that we still carry from sins against us. But we'll give the credit and we'll give the control and we'll give the controlling glory and power to someone else besides God. God reveals himself in a knowable way. We perceive and we know what God reveals, and then we deny it. We suppress what we know is true about God and ourselves, and we take the glory that it reveals about himself. We take the glory that he intends 
to show us that then fulfills our need for significance and security and hope and peace. And we go looking for that joy in other things and other people. And we end up depending on creation rather than creator. And we end up thinking and giving our gratitude to something or someone else and not God. And even religious people do this. Even real true Christians do this. It's a a really scary thing, but it's a loving thing that God has to say to his people at some point. The Bible goes, listen, I hate your festivals. The festivals that worship me and I told you to hold, I hate your festivals. You guys get together for church and you sing songs. I hate you. Shut up. No, no, no. You're singing great. Your voice is wonderful. The, The band sounds terrific. But I see your heart. You say with your mouth that you love me and you're thankful for me. But I know where your real gratitude and where the real honor and the glory and the credit goes. Talking out of both sides of your mouth. I see the lie in your heart and mind. That's a scary but also loving warning and rebuke for us to turn back toward God, right? So we, this might seem like a little strange kind of left-hand turn for me to take at the moment. Just, I guess, go with me. Um, we as a church, we have, one, we have one essential promise that we make to one another as members. We, we, call, we call it a covenant. And it's got several commitments and, and promises in, in, that, in that covenant. But if you could sum up our covenant into one essential promise, it's this. We promise as much as God will let us, as much as you will let us, we promise to fight for one another's, joy, uh, one another's joy in Christ. I promise to fight for your joy in Christ as your pastor. And see, that's the promise because there's a bunch of promises that I and you and we can't make to anyone. I, none of us can promise to always be there when you need us. I can't, I can't promise you that I will always pick up the phone when you call. I can't promise you that I'll respond to your text in your time of need or in a timely fashion. I can't, I can't promise you that I or the church or people here will have the money that you need to fulfill the cost. I can't, we can't promise anyone that we're going to have the wise answer, the wise word, the wise advice and counsel that you need in your moment of desperate chaos and confusion. We can't make that promise. None of us can promise anyone that we won't hurt your feelings. We can't make a promise that we'll never sin against you or fail one another. But we do have this promise. I promise I'm going to do my best as, as much as God will let me, as much as you will let me. I'm going to fight for your joy in Christ. And there is an unbreakable bond and chain and relationship between the joy you desperately need, you were designed for, and God's glory. You want joy? Find glory. And I want you to be joyful because I love you. I want you to be joyful. I want you, I want you to have security and peacefulness. I want you to have hope. I want you to have sturdiness. I want your needs physically and also emotionally and mentally and spiritually met. Because when I'm with other Christians who in faith, they, their spines are filled with steel and they got fire in their bellies. And even in loss and tra- tragedy and sadness, their faith and hope is in the Lord and they're going to stick with him and not curse his name as he wounds them. You know what that does to me? It brings me joy. It brings me hope. It builds up my faith. And just getting to be the pastor and having a pulpit, right? That doesn't, 
mean I just automatically just get a free card to have faith all the time, that I always have joy. So I fight for your joy because a lot of my joy is tied up in your joy. I think, I think possibly many of us in our, in our church are missing that piece, that my joy is an essential way it's really linked to the joy of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I seek my wife's good because, well, we're one. In an essential way, my goodness is tied up in and linked to her good. If I want, like the Bible says, like who, who loves his own body but hates his wife, right? Because she is your body. Like no, no man hates his body. You want good, seek the good of your wife. If you want good, if you want joy, God has ordained it so that his people of faith, like we find and and look for our joy together. We can promise and perfectly that we'll fight for your joy in Christ. My preaching is just one part of how I try to fulfill my end of that promise. So every Sunday, I'm just trying to do, at least in this part, I'm just trying to to fight for your joy. That's 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 why I do so much of it. Because I really want you to be happy in God. So just let me fight for your joy here in applying Romans 1 to your lives. Three things. The reason that God made you is to honor and glorify him. And the way you're designed to glorify him is by enjoying how great and glorious and wonderful he is. His his invisible attributes made visible. So if you want to lay hold of that essential joy that you desperately and rightly need, let's fight for one another in this. Number one, depend on God for ultimate joy. Underline that word depend. If If you're writing, underline it, circle it, put arrows. If you're me in your Bible, it's going to go, this dummy, right? Depend. Depend on God for your ultimate joy. In Acts chapter 17, I believe it'll probably be on the screens, here's what the Apostle Paul, he's preaching to a whole bunch of lost people, pagans, or they're religious people. They, they believe in all sorts of Greek and Roman gods. He's trying to get them to see and know the glory of the one true God. <laughs> and so he addresses them. He says, the, the God who made the world and everything in it, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history, the boundaries of their lands. And look, verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for and find him though he's not far from anyone. He created you hungry and thirsty so you'd go looking for food and water. He created you with a whole, a desire, a need for satisfaction, for joy, for peace, for security, for hope, for a sense that you matter and that you are loved no matter what. He created you with that. And he, all these things from day one, he's accomplished so that, he did this so that you would seek him and perhaps find him. Though he's not that far away in the first place. He's not that far away in the first place. In fact, he's so not far away, he shows up in person. 
in the person of Jesus. You want joy? Depend. Be a dependent person. We don't serve God. He doesn't need anything from you. He's not relying on you. He doesn't need anything from you that he doesn't already own. Like, I don't, I don't like, blow the whistle and, as the theological, you know, word referee when one goes, I gave my heart to Jesus. Pfft, full, pfft, he's got whatever he wants, right? I surrendered my life to Christ. I, I'm not blown, because you need to give your heart to Jesus. You do. You need to submit your life to Jesus. You do. But it's not something that he needs that he's waiting on you to give. And he can't have it until you make some decisive thing happen. You can't serve him. He's independent creator, and you are dependent creation. So the glory and honor always goes to the one who serves. Doesn't it? The pe- when, like, so when you honor someone, when you tell someone thank you, right? When you tell other people about the great thing your friend did or that leader did, someone came through, they, they, man, they wrote a check. They helped you with the car. They watched your kids when you were sick, right? They, they, they gave you the advice. They coached you. They discipled you. They stuck with you. They were your faithful friend, teacher, mentor. They served you. They gave of themselves to you the very thing that they had that you need. And what do you do when you tell them thank you and you tell other people about what this person, you, what, you're, what you're doing is you're honoring them, you're glorifying them. The person who gives and serves is the one who gets the glory. And there are more than several times in the scriptures where God goes, uh, my glory I will give to no other. I don't give my glory to anybody else. I'm not gonna let anyone like, really truly steal that. You want joy? Get to glory. He's not far off. You want joy? How will you find it? You take the needs of your spirit, your soul, your heart, your mind, and your body, of your life, and you search for him and find him, and he's nearby. Because he'll serve you. But if you believe God is independently waiting on you, I'm sorry, if you believe God is dependently waiting on you, To do something. If you believe that God is waiting on you to be something or become something, like, I don't know, better. Like he's pacing around, wringing his hands. His mission for your life, his purpose for your life, his purpose for the world or lost people. If he's like pacing around, wringing his hands, going, when are they going to get to it? When are they going to finally start reading their Bible more? When are they finally going to make the big decision and take a risk, a leap of faith? Oh, man, I just my hands are tied until you. I want you to understand that's at best foolish. You're in a very peculiar and extremely tricky place of pride. It's the sort of unrighteous pride of Romans 1, but it's really scary because it's odorless and invisible. And if it looks or smells like anything, it looks and smells like humility, but it's not. Because it it seems like humility and submission to want to serve God in thanks. God, you have done for me. Now I want to do for you. I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to return the favor. In reality, that's going to make you look for joy, but you're going to be looking for your joy not in God doing something for you, but in you doing something for God. You want to be satisfied not by God serving you and saving you and giving and meeting your need. You want to be satisfied by God saying to you, thanks, I really needed that. 
I appreciate that. I'm so glad I made you, I put you on my team. I was waiting. I was really counting on you. You came through. Ah, now, now God approves of me because of what I've done for him, how I've served him. If you want to really find joy in your life, I want to urge you, confess and settle back into your dependence. Confess and settle back into your weakness and limit. Confess and settle back with a clean conscience into the arms of God the Father who says, oh, you came to the right place. You're thirsty. I give you the drink. You're hungry. Ah, oh, You came. I'm your dad. I'm the one who gives you food. You need peace. You need forgiveness. I'm the one who does that. You need approval. You need acceptance. You came to me. He's glorified by that. Depend on God. You bring your every need to him. You cast your every care on him. You lay your every burden of your soul upon him. You drag that wagon load of sin into the light and you let it rest upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. Some of us are worried about overburdening God with our neediness and our repeated prayers like he's going to get tired of us like our earthly dads. So there's a million times, right? God's not, God's not a dad like me, Right? There's not a moment where you pray for the hundredth time for something big or small where God, like me as a dad, goes, hey, ask again and find out what happens. I heard you the first time. I heard you the first 70 times. Right? He's not that kind of, he's a good dad. He's a perfect dad. And it's actually my dependence over and over and over and over and over again that actually glorifies him and honors him. God is glorified and his honor is most powerfully seen not in the well-together well put together, powerful, pretty, independent, achieving person. His glory is most powerfully known in the needy and the exhausted. In the failing and the failed. In the sinner who finds herself repenting. She's lost count of times. In the ignorant and the crippled, physically. The crippled emotionally, the crippled mentally, in the broken. He, his honor and glory are seen and revealed in the broken and their fearful, in the chronically shameful, dependent people who decide to camp out and make their house right by the well. Him. The glory goes to God when you're served by him. You want joy? I'm just going to urge you. Let, why don't you put in practice? Practice dependence. No small things. Everything's big for us. You depend on God. Number two, live in happy gratitude to God. You want joy? Let me fight for your joy. Why don't you, why don't you practice this with me? Because, again, I have this conversation all the time. I had it like several times yesterday. Before any of this stuff gets past the Bible and the pulpit to you in a sermon, right, it's been like bah, pounding me all week long, maybe weeks or months, right? So I'm, I'm doing this with you. Would you join me, right? Live in happy gratitude to God. Give credit to God. Give honor to God. Give thanks to God. You know what? That takes real effort. Because maybe, maybe you're in a moment or a season where you get, I'm upset. I'm sad. I'm filled with anxiety. I got very, very little faith. I just don't feel like it. Right? Or maybe just emotionally you're drained or you just don't have it in you. I just don't feel, I'm not upset or anxiety. I just don't have the mm, spiritual oomph to like, mm, glory to God. Thank you, God. It's real hard. It's actually real hard. It takes a lot of effort. Real effort. So that's why 
That's why I'm desperate to cling to my Bible and read it over and over and over again. It, it takes real effort to live in happy gratitude to God. That, that's why I listen. This is not bragging. Honestly, some of you should probably just kind of pray for me and feel sorry for me that I'm just like this nerdy and just like, but most weeks I'm listening to like five or six sermons a week. Like a lot of the time they're not even related to what I got to preach about. But I got to listen to the Bible taught to me and, and told the, the things and the glory and the wonder and the, the worthiness of Jesus. I'd have that told me all the time. It, it's why I have to try to make prayer in my life not a thing that I do at a, at a particular time of day. It's why I'm trying to have prayer just simply, kind of simply be my day. It's why I'm trying to commit to and guard large sections of my hours and my energy and time to be with brothers and sisters in our church. It's, it's there in God's word. It's there in talking to him and being with him and being reminded of who he is and what he's done, what he's doing. It, it's in hearing and seeing the power and the goodness of God in the lives of the people in the church that I'm spending time with, right? It's there that I won't be able to forget. It's going to be harder for me to neglect him and even accidentally ignore and suppress the truth and start finding my joy and satisfaction in other things. I'm trying to make it hard for me. By God's grace, I'm trying to make it hard for me to suppress the truth. Glorify God to one another by sharing your prayer requests with one another. It's concerned for me, by the way. This is not always the indicate what, what this indicates, but often it sadly does indicate something. It's time for prayer. How can we pray for one another? And it's crickets. Sometimes that crickets is we're all being patient. We don't want to take the first opportunity and skip over everyone else and be first in line, right? But some of that cricket time, you don't share a prayer request. A lot of the time that indicates that you don't have a prayer request because you're not praying. I don't know how to tell you how I'm depending upon God because I'm not depending upon him. I'm not glorifying him with my need. Share your prayer requests with one another because when someone expresses and shows and says, listen, of all the things that I need, I need you with me and on my behalf. Would you call the name of God? Because I really believe when we pray and we call him, he does stuff. Would you join me in that? Because I really need God to come through. I'm depending upon I'm not even asking you for money. I'm not even asking you for your advice. I'm not even asking for you to give me a good recommendation for the right podiatrist that you use because now my foot's messed up. Maybe I could use that, be nice, but I'm asking you for prayer because I need God who loves my body and cares for me to, to care for my body, to heal my foot, whether he does it miraculously or with medicine. It's showing glory to God with dependence and thankfulness, honor, listen, honor God by letting other people know when and how God answers your prayer. With God in prayer and one another, express happy dependence. Be glad and give thanks for everything he's made and done in your life. And again, there's no small thing that you can ask him for that he's bothered by. When my, when my girls were little, they'd come and interrupt me in my office while I'm working for the Lord, writing sermons, right? Daddy, I... I've got the can of Coke, but my little fingers can't open it. Would you open it for me? That's a little thing to me, but that's a big thing for them. i got big fingers, and I can open the can. I love to do it to, to give my, 
my girls what they want, what they need, and makes them happy. And not only are there small things, there, there's no small things to give thanks to God for. They're all big. Thanks for this meal. Thanks, thanks for this, this pet. Thanks for my friend. Thanks for this house. Thanks for the sunny day, right? It's not small and stupid. It really matters. Finally, number three. Complete your joy by expressing gratitude in God to others. I really just explained at some length on how to do this. But I'm going to tell you this. You can't do any of this if you live in divided, private, independent solitude. You're hobbling yourself. You're slashing your Achilles heel of your spiritual feet to be able to walk toward your joy in Christ. When you restrain, contain, and hold back your life, valuing, valuing your privacy and your independence and your solitude and the rhythm and comfort and leisure of your life the way you like it at the expense of others getting to participate or you participating with them. That's why we put, listen, that's why we put so much into gathering and worship on Sunday mornings because we're fighting for your joy. It's why Jeremy Lemihu, our deacon over our groups and all of his community group leaders, it's why, listen, it's why these people sacrifice so much time and effort to create time and space for us to gather with one another. It, it's why I'm constantly urging you to gather with each other for meals, for fun, for fellowship, for reading the Bible, for prayer, text one another, call each other, check up on each other, spend time with each other, do stuff together, whether it's, I don't know, putt-putt or building a shed in the backyard, working on someone's car, whatever. That's why I urge, we urge all of this because your enjoyment in something, specifically God, but your enjoyment in something is never truly actually complete until you've actually shared and expressed it. That's why you eat a really good sandwich. You can't help it. You go, mmm, that's glory, that's praise, worship. You can't eat a gr the best sandwich of your life and remain silent. Like Lay's, you know, Pringles or whatever, you can't just eat one, right? You can't truly enjoy and be satisfied with something without sharing it, expressing that enjoyment. Complete your joy. Get what you want, which God designed for you to get, which is joy. Don't get half of it. Don't get half of it. Get all of it. Complete your joy by sharing the goodness of God, his glory in your life that satisfies you with other people. You can't do that on your own. So if you find yourself, I'm just going to say this, if you find yourself starving and thirsty for joy, perhaps in these days or perhaps for a season, perhaps you're feeling really depleted of peace or encouragement or inclusion, friendship, safety, security, I want you to seriously consider, I'm just going to leave this at your feet. You do this with the Lord and ask him to help you. I want you to seriously consider how you live your life right now specifically how you live your life in relationship to other Christians. Is the lion's share of your time and energy devoted to your work? You gotta work. Ain't no sin to work. You're working overtime hours for money that you don't really need? That's cool. That might be okay. You're working overtime hours for money you don't really need 
at the expense of glorifying God to brothers and sisters in Christ who are depending upon you to share it with them at the expense of your own joy because now you're not receiving the glory of God in the enjoyment of others on you? That might be a problem. That might be depleting. That might be what is really just like starving your soul, killing you spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. Is it your work? Is it hobbies? Is it working on stuff on your own? Too busy, too occupied, running around. Entertainment, leisure, comfort. And I didn't name anything bad. I'm just naming stuff, good stuff that gets in the way of you completing your joy. And I want to fight for your joy. So, God is most glorified. He's most glorified by dependent people in need of joy, by people who, in receiving their needs from God, they're joyfully thankful in him and for him. He's glorified by people who are convinced that their satisfaction in God is never going to be complete until they've shared it with somebody else. So I end with the pinnacle truth. Here's, here's how we end today. Is this pinnacle truth that, by the way, if you don't suppress this truth, but instead if you accept it and if you confess it and you believe in it, you will find your ultimate necessary joy. And it's this, verse 16 of Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God's, God for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jews because they were God's people first and then to the Gentiles and the Greek, right? He just opens them up to the church. For in it, the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, the ungodly, the unrighteous, that's every single one of us in our natural born state. We're people with futile minds, darkened hearts. We'll never please God because we're not pleased by him. We'll never satisfy God because we're not satisfied by him. That's our essential core problem. That's the core. That's That's the parent of all of our other sins. We're not satisfied by him. But the glory of God is revealed in the gospel. The truth about Jesus Christ, who takes the sin of men upon himself, who takes upon himself the wrath of God that is being revealed, and it's being, it's the, what we deserve for not being pleased in God, for being displeased, for not being satisfied in God, but being dissatisfied. It's revealed in in that Jesus, the God-man who cleanses us of the shame and guilt for insulting and offending his glory and gives to us his goodness and his perfection. So here's how this works. Jesus Christ is perfectly satisfied and he's happy with God, his father. You know why Jesus pleases God perfectly? Because he's pleased by God, his father, perfectly. No one makes Jesus more happy, more safe, more secure, more loved than no one and belonging to his dad. And he brings his father pleasure because his, he finds his father ultimate pleasure. And if you, listen, if you'll believe the gospel in faith, then the joy that Jesus has becomes your, yours. The peace, the comfort, the happiness, the sturdiness, the in- inclusion, the approval that he has, that's going to be yours because his father will now be your father. Because his, sort of, his source of satisfaction is going to be yours. Because he'll, you've agreed to answer his beck and call away from all the empty, broken wells you've been digging. 
and come and live by the real well with him and his dad. Because the joy that he has in the glory of God is going to be your joy that you find in the glory of God. Let's, let's practice in communion and respond to the preached words. This communion which communicates, it teaches us about this pinnacle of the glory of God. Because see, there's nothing special about the, the little uh, kind of uh, single-serving communion.